0: Every team. Every topic. Everywhere. This is
1: Believe. Welcome to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstam, and this is The Guitar Life. My special guest today. Legendary jazz guitarist Larry Koontz. He's been on countless recordings. He teaches a class at CalArts. Or should I say classes? Knowledgeable cat. Lots of experience. Let's chat with Larry Koontz. I'm good, thanks. I wonder why we had a little bit of technical trouble there. Yeah, I didn't have a
0: Zoom link until just a few minutes ago.
1: Oh, well, here we are. Yeah. Is it hot where you are? Oh,
0: it's ridiculous. I just worked out, though, so I'm...
1: Hotter than you're supposed to be. (laughs) <laughs> sweating like
0: crazy yeah ha <laughs>
1: ha whereabouts do you live out there uh,
0: la crescenta you know where that is oh yeah
1: sure my uncle lives in uh, montrose
0: oh yeah i love that area
1: yeah he's got he lives uh, he can walk into that little township there and uh he's been there forever he used to uh teach at cal state northridge and uh live in uh la crescenta montrose area yeah
0: oh nice where do you live john
1: i live in laguna beach
0: Oh, you do. Oh, my my wife's brother lives there.
1: Oh yeah, what you know what street he lives on, or whereabouts in town he lives? Uh,
0: yeah, it's called uh, Capistrano.
1: Oh sure, that's right near where I live.
0: Is it really? Yes. Wow. What a yeah. trip. Yeah. Yeah, he lives right on. Uh, he lives right on the edge of Capistrano, so as he's got a beautiful view of a an hundred and eighty degree. View I can walk
1: beach. there from my house. It's not far from here at all.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for being on uh, the podcast. Uh it's a great uh, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks.
0: Likewise. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh thanks. Yeah. Uh I've been watching uh, I've been watching your uh videos trying to catch up on uh my uh, history of Larry Koontz here. And uh you YouTube said YouTube videos? Pardon?
0: YouTube videos?
1: Yeah. YouTube yeah. video YouTube videos and whatever I can find, uh, you know. Uh, just to uh, learn more about you and uh, get up to date, as much as I can. Um, you said you attended a, a Segovia concert when you were like six, and that was uh, an inspiration, or seven years old, or something like that. Uh, is that true? Is that uh, was that a big uh, music turn on for you?
0: That is true. Yeah, my father is a guitarist. Right. And
1: uh, is he still with us, by the way? He is. Oh, good. That's good.
0: Still playing, too.
1: Oh, wow. I, I watched a Pepperdine uh, video of him uh, playing in his trio, I guess, a few years back. And uh, your dad's what I call a tune guy, you know, a guy. In, or, in order to play the guitar like him, you got to know uh, music. you got to study music. you got to study tunes. you got to, you know, really uh, be dedicated.
0: Well, he's, he's a really natural player. I mean, he he has been playing since the age of four, I think. <laughs> uh, he grew up in Missouri, and he you know he learned country tunes. He has perfect pitch, and he's just a really um, natural guitarist. You know, it, it comes out of him in a in an organic way.
1: Yeah, he's a real mu- true musician,
0: self taught. You know, never went to teachers and.
1: At that, and, uh, uh, excuse me, but at that Segovia concert, you know, did did lightning strike in your mind or was that just an inspirational night of entertainment uh, or did you envision yourself becoming a guitarist one day?
0: Well, you know, I, I honestly didn't feel like it was entertainment. To me, it felt like it was um, a spiritual awakening of some sort, you know. Sure. I, I mean, I was really young at the time, but. For me, it was, it was a profound experience. It really moved me deeply.
1: There you go. You know? Yeah.
0: So that was the, that was the motivation. I mean, I wanted to capture that kind of magic someday.
1: How, how long after that uh, d- did you start studying guitar? Like, I think you started with classical guitar and then moved into jazz after middle school or something. Or when did you start taking lessons?
0: I started taking lessons at the age of seven.
1: Okay. So, Not long after. Right
0: after that. Right after that experience with Segovia, I, be, I became interested in the guitar. And, and my father sent me to um, Vernon Polk, who was a guitarist that that taught in the valley at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just kind of learned the basics of the fingerboard at that age.
1: Right. And then in middle school, you got turned on to jazz somehow, right? Or how did that come about? How did How did you? You know, start relating to another form of music besides uh, your classical guitar concert that you attended.
0: (laughs) Yeah, mainly it was because um, a lot of my buddies in in, um, junior high school were in the jazz program. And it was a really strong jazz program at Eagle Rock High School. Okay. So uh, for me, it was more, um, it came more out of a social context you know Mm -hmm. me hanging out with my buddies that's what they were doing um and and you know jazz is so social anyway it's all about communication and camaraderie and support all that all that good stuff
1: so So, sorry um, yeah so when your dad saw that you were getting more serious uh he uh suggested jimmy weibel is that is that how that happened he he said uh, you're starting to get more into a modern, uh, you know, uh, where you're getting ready or mature enough to appreciate what you might learn. And so uh, you start taking... Yeah,
0: when, when he noticed I was getting more serious about it, I think I started with Jimmy at the age of 15, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew Jimmy from his old days in, in Las Vegas. Um, he played with Harry James, and Jimmy was there, I think, playing with Red Norvo. Right. And Jimmy, of course, amazing virtuoso. Um, and was friends with my father back then, and remained friends up until his death in 2010. So uh, yeah, Jimmy was definitely my most influential teacher.
1: Right. Uh, you 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 become like the company you keep, right? So so uh, you 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 had a quote in there. You said that he was one of five great bebop guitar players you know the pre-bop excuse me guitarist who are the other four can you can you remember who they were or is that just a, a random well
0: i would say charlie christian's definitely in that list okay you know um and george van epps right would be in that same list um eddie lang yeah uh, and it you know, I, I just threw out a number there. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, got, I got you. You know, yeah.
1: Who was uh, who was? Uh, oh, it was Eddie Lang was uh, Bing Crosby's guitarist, I guess, right?
0: That's right. Yeah. yeah. Great guitarist. Yeah,
1: no, all those guys were great. And if you listen closely on those uh, TV recordings, you know those those uh, soundtracks, you can hear them in there playing some beautiful stuff.
0: Jimmy Jimmy was ridiculous. I mean, his you know a lot of, he was such a humble and sort of unassuming guy that people didn't know he wouldn't trot out his technique but you know when he did it was it was like a thunderclap i mean his time sense was so so beautiful i mean it was right in the middle and swung like hell
1: timeless yeah some of those recordings of him and some of the videos i watch of him playing it's like a timeless style that you you would even want to try and emulate in modern guitar now even it was that melodic yeah, I mean, right he had
0: a way of improvising with counterpoint which is close to impossible on guitar uh that i you know to this day i don't know how he did it
1: above and beyond ted green
0: <laughs> well ted 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 was br- unbelievably brilliant um but ted wasn't really uh, a jazz guitarist in Right. The, you know more like it was more like a catch-all of a lot of things. Right, um, genius. Ted was Ted was a genius. It's just it, it, Jimmy's style was totally, you know, totally different than Ted's. Bob, different direction.
1: Yeah. So, so you've uh, you've decided that you're going to become a professional guitar player, right? And you're leaving high school and you're on your way to call. How did you get into the USC program? Um, How since since they didn't have they weren't giving diplomas for guitar players until around that time, right? I mean, what how did that happen?
0: Well, I think they were. I think the diploma program started some sometime in the mid '70s when I was still in junior high. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was only for classical guitarists at the time. Right. Christopher Parkening was teaching there, Um, and when I went to USC. Pepe Romero was there. I think Pepe was there before I went there. Um, And they started the studio guitar program, I think, originally with Lee Rittenauer on the faculty for about a year, you know, when he was in his young 20s. He got too busy, actually, to teach there. I mean, Lee was on the scene really quickly. Um, But, uh, yeah, they started to offer a studio guitar degree there, Uh, I think it was probably the late 70s. And I went there in the early 80s. So I was kind of right at the beginning of when they started to offer degrees for this stuff.
1: Right. And you being the first uh, to receive a diploma, right? In in that sort Uh, of a genre? In jazz jazz
0: studies. Yeah. Yeah. First recipient of the jazz studies degree.
1: Who who mapped out your curriculum in order for you to... uh, you know, qualify? How did you, how did you make that, uh, you know, get the stamp of approval? What was the, what was the curriculum?
0: They had already sort of mapped out the curriculum and I started in the studio guitar program and uh, Paula Rose and Duke Miller were there at the time. Duke was the head of the program. Duke was an amazing guitarist. He was sort of a consultant at Yamaha for years and a teacher for many huh. years, and and was a studio guitarist early on. I think in the '50s he did a lot of stuff. Um, okay. And Duke was brilliant. I mean, he was a great teacher, very methodical. Um, Paula Rose was a guitarist that came from uh, University of Miami, and uh, Paul was a lot younger than Duke, and and he sort of brought a lot of uh, of. Uh, Fresh sort of updated material okay. to the program, and they both devised the curriculum, which was uh, very guitar intensive.
1: That must have been very uh, helpful for you in the future that was to come, with all the recording projects that you got involved with, with everything that happened in your career. They must have really given you a lot of uh, a lot of great uh, great advice and great things to prepare yourself with, right? do you think?
0: Definitely. I mean, USC provided a great foundation for um, all the, uh, what's the best way to put this? All the foundational sure. aspects of playing and knowing the fingerboard, reading, Right. Um, you know, knowing all my triads and inversions and, and really getting us a, a, a handle on all the, you know, formal elements that you need in music in terms of improvisation. Um, most of my education was was just uh, outside of school. You know, it really doesn't exist in a in a strong form uh, at a school that is more about classroom learning.
1: You know, right. You had to drink some gutter water. Gutter yeah, water, exactly. I call it. You got to get out there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But that's great when you can meld those two things together. You know, you're you're there. You're in a you're in a high-profile jazz situation playing with some other great jazz musicians at a gig. You have that as a background, and you have your you know, your spontaneous uh, experience that you get from playing in clubs like that, and it all makes for greatness, I think. It's great. You know That program uh, must have uh, attracted a lot of people to have guys like uh, Joe DiOrio uh, eventually getting on the staff and Richard Smith so the USC uh, program, you know, must have uh, had a lot of clout after a while. Uh, it must have really uh, made, a, made a mark in the industry for guys like that to want to teach there, right? I really
0: think it was, uh, you know, um, one of the strongest programs ever in terms of guitar curriculum. Right. Richard Smith. Richard Smith was actually a student at the same time. So he was getting his graduate degree while I was getting my undergraduate degree.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. And then Joe DiOrio came along, I think maybe after I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the classical guitar program, I mean, has always been acknowledged as being one of the strongest programs in the world. I mean, some of, some of the students that I went to school with are, are just my favorite classical guitarists on the planet. Scott Tennant. Bill Cannon, or John Deerman, a lot of really great players.
1: Yeah. You know, it's difficult for me to, like, delve into, you know, your recording career when you have, like, 300, uh, you know, <laughs> commercial recordings to your credit playing on other people's albums and various, you know, projects. Um, in your memory, uh, what are some of the... Uh, the great studio, uh, you know, uh, projects that you had, some of the great albums that you played on to your memory, what would that be?
0: To be honest with you, most of the m- really memorable projects for me are the sort of uh, boutique <laughs> projects that I take on myself with my friends, not the high-profile stuff. The high-profile stuff is great. Um, and, you know, I mean, playing with, guys like uh you know rod stewart and and you know and seth mcfarlane and and,
1: uh, you did you did a rita coolidge recording with jimmy haslip
0: (laughs) rita yeah i mean all that stuff is fantastic but for me the most fulfilling projects are projects that are um that are featuring some of my original material or friends original material or You know, or situations where you're playing with people that you play with all the time that are like family.
1: I'm sure there's people out there that are going to hear this. They're going to be surprised by you saying that because they forget that the artist or the musician himself has his own prerogative. and He wants to, like, fulfill some of his dreams as a creative musician. And uh, to think that over and above, like playing with Rod Stewart or like even... I've heard stories of guys being invited in famous bands and say, "No, I'm too busy with my own stuff to join you guys at the moment." And people just scratch their heads, going, "Why did he yeah. turn that down?" Right?
0: Yeah. Well, there's a perception, you know. That, yeah. That, um, um, sure. Because you know because they're selling a lot of records or because they're Popular. famous, that it should always be uh, <laughs> uh, you know they have this romantic vision that it should should be you know. Yeah. A high, a high experience in an artist's yeah. life.
1: Yeah. yeah, screw them. Let's be jazz guitar players, right? Hey, uh, so <laughs> well, I was watching. And those guys
0: are incredibly talented. It's sure, I, I know. I'm just kidding around. Of what they do?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I was watching a, I was watching a baked potato video, and uh, you guys were taking extended uh, solos, and perhaps we could talk a little bit about modal thinking. Like I had a piano player tell me. One time he said, "Hey, you're a great modal guitar player, right?" I said, "Oh yeah, thanks very much." I think. and I thought to myself, "What the heck is he talking about?" You know, and I asked him, and he said, "Well, I'm not going to explain it to you because it might wreck the way you play." You know, so uh, you took uh, you know an extended guitar solo, and uh, I don't think the chord you know changed much like in other words the band was still uh, grooving on one chord but you were able to like uh, take an adventure in music you know based on what they were doing in the background how do you how do you explain uh you know your uh, your approach to modal thinking even though that's an incredibly broad uh, subject you know
0: yeah that's that's sort of a um a broad question but i mean typically m- modal playing is um you know, staying within a specific set of pitches, you know, to describe a chord color. You know, if you're playing a, a, a sort of a minor mode, you're kind of emphasizing that, that minor mode with all the uh, pitch material that you're choosing as an improviser, mm-hmm. but that, that can be really static, it can stay in one place. So there are there are ways to sort of stretch outside of that without getting too technical. It's it's like you add, it's like you're embellishing things with other layers of sound
1: that, that relate to the, yeah
0: away from that sound that are more dissonant, and then pull you back to that sound.
1: Well, that's a good uh, that's a good uh, description. I think people can appreciate that. So, uh, you know, for minor. For a minor chord, um, there's all kinds of different minor scales, right? You, you can pick and choose uh, however you want it to go uh, as a, you know, as the commander in chief of your own, you know, destiny in the middle of a song, right? I mean, or, or do, you, do, you, do you let the chords uh, really, uh, you know, uh, dictate?
0: Well, you know, John, the, the best way to describe it is I, I, I wait for my senses to tell me what to do. It's not an intellectual process. It's not like okay, I see that chord, and I'm going to use this specific scale. It's more about what strikes me in the moment because there's no one right scale for a situation. Right. There can be a multiple. There can be multiple ways of sort of approaching things, and it's all situational. So right. it, you know, it depends on what the bass player is playing. If I'm playing with a pianist, it depends on what the pianist is playing. So, so for me, it's it's about reacting in right.
1: the moment. Well, it's probably great having a resource, you know, or, or a pool of ideas and a pool of uh, knowledge to draw from, so you can make those kind of spontaneous choices. So, I guess that's where the study comes in. Yeah, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, I think. I th- yeah, I, absolutely. I think you you study and and you experiment with things, and you certain things. Sort of take hold and certain things go by the wayside and um, i think the process is that after that after you sort of add to that pole then you get more automatic with it and there's more of a, a a sense of using the intuition you know what what trust what each moment feels like it needs yeah you know
1: cool that's a great description So, uh, how about that uh, that amber colored? If it is amber colored, jazz guitar. I see you playing. Boris, is that what that is? What?
0: Uh, Yeah, Roger uh, Roger Boris is the maker of that guitar.
1: I mean, I see you using that an awful lot, and it sure sounds good. Talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, he's a luthier. you, you know what? Can, can we hold just for a second? Sure. There's someone at the door, and my wife's teaching, so she can't answer it.
1: Okay, I'll just put it on oh, hold for a second. <laughs> Jazz Standards, Volume 4, Could Be the Blues. That was Larry Kuntz on guitar. Wow. Great jazz guitarist. You're listening to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstam, and this is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe.
0: Jazz acts, although I, yeah. end, up, I, I end up playing, you know, on different projects, I might end up playing, you know, a Martin flat top or... Uh, I do a lot of nylon string stuff, too.
1: Oh, I, yeah. What is that yeah. nylon string guitar, the cutaway that I see you playing on some yeah, of these that's, videos?
0: Yeah, that's a, a really fine instrument made by um, Paul McGill, who's a builder in Tennessee. Okay. And Paul's another master woodworker, and his instruments are really beautiful. But they, they have a smaller neck than a classical, typical classical guitar, which has a two-inch nut. This right. is like a, a inch and seven-eighths. So it's a lot easier for like a a jazz-based guitarist to get around on. Those two-inch nuts for me are really tricky to play. I mean, I have played those guitars, but um, it's a lot more facile to use.
1: I think on the recording I was watching, um, you had a mic in front of it. Do you you rely more on the acoustic quality or or the pickup that's in there? Or does it even have a pickup?
0: It does. It has a really great pickup. RM uh, McGlish pickup. RMC
1: McGlish, sure. Yeah. I I know about them, yeah. Yeah. And okay.
0: yeah, it's a it's a really great pickup. It's very warm. Um yeah. You know, it gets away from that piezo thwackiness on the sure. on the top and thinness, you know.
1: Use it for your bossa novas and stuff like that. Bossa yeah. novas
0: are like I play with this group with this pianist, Billy Childs. That's sort of like um I don't know. It's like a modern 20th century classical group with uh, improvisation. So there's a lot. I know
1: Billy Childs. Yeah. He and I played at my brother's wedding. Oh,
0: wow. That's amazing.
1: (laughs) I got a photograph of him behind Fender Rhodes and me wearing all denims at a wedding. Yeah,
0: that's really that has got to be a long time ago.
1: Yeah, it was a long time ago. We were in a group with... uh, Charles Meeks and James Bradley we had this uh jazz band that we were rehearsing and Chris Caswell was the piano player.
0: Oh yeah. I know Chris.
1: But uh, Billy Billy would sub sub the rehearsal sometimes and come and play with us but oh. we never got That was the one gig I did with Billy a wedding with my at my brother's yeah.
0: I've played with Chris with uh, the singer Karen Allison.
1: Yeah, he he's a great you know Hammond player and Uh, You know, here he's conducting the Paul Williams Orchestra, and he's doing all this stuff. And on the side, he's just an amazing keyboard guy. I mean, he can really play his butt Oh, it's
0: fantastic. Chris is a great musician.
1: Chris is something else. So what type of uh, amplification do you like? I mean, uh, you must have a few different types of amps since you're doing sessions. You know, you probably call on different types of uh, equipment occasionally, right?
0: Well, I'm not really a session guy. Um, I mean, I, I have done a lot of studio work, but it's mainly niche kind of stuff. I've recorded a lot with singers, um, and I'm not the guy that does, like, film and TV work. I've done some oh, okay. of that. But, you know, I don't have, like, a cabinet full of guitars and a cabinet full of amplifiers. Right. I'm I'm okay. mainly a jazz guitarist. Um, well,
1: what what jazz amp do you like Yeah, for I, your Boris?
0: I use an amp called a Quilter.
1: Oh, sure. Quilter's, generic, company.
0: Love this amp. It's really light, um, has a big sound. You know, it kind of feels like a Fender amp to me, and a lot of power. It's so easy to you know, to transport. You know, I used to have a Fender, you know, different Fender amps, and we just break. Pat Quilter, is that Pat Quilter? It is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he lives in Laguna Beach. I know. I talked to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, Pat. In fact, my wife's,
0: um, my wife's brother, my brother-in-law, uh, meets with him every once in a while because he's into cars. They're both into cars. so
1: That's a great family because we have kids that are the same age as some of their you know, relatives. So I know the whole quilter family, yeah. Yeah, Pat's a great guy. What a What a... Great product he made! Wow, brilliant. Guy. He saved he saved hundreds of backs, <laughs> <laughs> exactly for people who were carrying for people who were carrying heavy amplifiers. Yeah,
0: twin is serious, you know.
1: You know, as a teacher now, you've uh, you know you've become a, a. I guess we can call you a professor at Cal Arts, right? Is that what is that what they call you out there? Or are you just a teacher? <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: you know, I get some mail addressed to <laughs> Professor Coons, but I don't I don't pay too much attention to the to the professor. Oh, too bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, what's uh, what's some of your classes called? What what are you doing there mainly? You so know?
0: I teach um, a lot of private lessons one on one. And I have a couple of small ensembles. Um, this year they're going to be really small because everything's going to be remote, and we're hoping that we're actually looking into this software called JackTrip. Have you heard about it?
1: No, but I guess I'm going to learn about it right now.
0: Yeah, it's software that that could possibly make playing um, in sync work, you know, remotely. Because that's the big problem. You can't play with another person because of that delay.
1: Slight slight delay. Right. So
0: there's this it's this software that's supposed to sort of make playing with with a small number of people a possibility. So that's
1: yeah, instead of a virtual performance where everybody does their track separately and then they all some guy has to mix it all.
0: Yeah. Of course that's different because you're not responding to each other.
1: Yeah. You don't get the uh yeah. Communication, music communication, music language.
0: And I also teach an improv class. Uh, first semester, it's it's usually more uh, um, more geared towards standards. You know, how do, how do you improvise over standard progressions? And the second semester is more advanced kind of harmonic improv.
1: That's more uh, to the point. Because I was going to say... Uh, Cal Arts uh, teaching classes makes sense, but doing one on ones, you go to the campus and you have a a studio where you teach a person a one on one lesson or they don't come to your house. I mean, how do you do that?
0: Well, yeah, I would go there four days a week. This is pre-COVID. Right. Uh huh. Um, And, you know, I'm there essentially four long days out of the week. It's a full time position. Yeah, right. So lessons, ensembles. Uh, improv classes that kind of stuff that 's the mix
1: i'm only i 'm only curious about that because uh you know we both we were talking about buell neidlinger, who was a teacher there, and he said he used to teach there and then his students would come you know he would he would gather his students you know in the classrooms and tell them, here i i teach privately at home so I'd come in but they' they 're letting you uh you know, have private uh, students right there on the campus. So that's uh, that's uh interesting.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. it's an insurance thing. I think that was back in the day. I don't think that mm-hmm. really takes place in most schools where students who are out of school can go to someone's house. There's a liability right. issue now. I mean, now we're in a litigious society, you know. Right. A lot of lawsuits. Sure. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, so uh, that's great. Keeping on the, uh, on the education thing, you were, you were talking on this one uh, uh, interview that you were doing about uh, people scatting, people about uh, recreating uh, their idea with their voice, and then that's going to translate to the uh, guitar or in, whatever instrument you're playing eventually, you know, singing through your instrument type of yeah. thing. Could you talk about that just a little bit? Is that something that you encourage all of your students to uh, try to learn how to do?
0: Sure. Yeah, I actually do emphasize it a lot. Um, you know, when you think of the, blue, the great blues masters, um, the quality that comes to mind when I hear them play immediately is that they're singing through the instrument. It sounds like they're singing Eric Clapton, you know, Stevie Ray. Um, right. B.B. King. You know, it's, it's definitely vocal driven. You know they're bending pitches like a voice would bend. They're adding vibrato, um, all the expressive elements that exist right. that, they're, that they're that they're using on the instrument are derived from vocal techniques. I mean, techniques is the wrong word. Expression, vocal expression. Right. So it,
1: singing through the guitar, what BB King used to yeah, say. Yeah,
0: it's like it's it's connected to. The same place that you know great singers are connected to—it's real, you know. It's not something of the head; it's something of the heart and the gut.
1: Right. How do you start people out on that adventure? Do you just say just start singing uh, your scales with some sort of uh, adjective or some sort of uh, phrase, or, or doo doo la la? You know, well, what, what do you? How do you?
0: Yeah, the, the thing is you don't have to be a great vocalist to actually start out on the journey, but you do have to sort of get used to vocalizing. So mm-hmm. The thing is when you, when, you, when you play guitar, it's a little like um, sort of being on a, a, a typewriter keyboard. You can press a button and something happens without feeling it. You can put your finger mm-hmm. down on the fret. You can create a pitch without hearing it or feeling it. When you sing, you can't do that. It has to be real. You have to hear a pitch. You have to sing it. So it trains you to sort of get in touch with that part of you that does things automatically and from a a deeper place. You know, that's why there's tons of guitarists that can play really fast. They have all this physical ability on the instrument and don't say anything.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell them that you said that, but... uh... Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, that's true. I mean, there are... are No, I know. I'm just... You know, they have all this technique, and it means nothing. Yeah. Because they're not connected in the right way, or it's not expressive, or it doesn't speak... It doesn't tell a story.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Quoting Buell Neidlinger, is that your fingers or is that your mind? (laughs) (laughs) That kind of thing, right? You know, you also talked about uh, ethnic influences... Like, do you bring that into the classroom? Afro beats, Latin beats, uh, rhythm and blues, uh, as much uh, rhythmic uh, information uh, culturally as you can into your classes?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, at at CalArts, I was really lucky to sort of be exposed to a lot of world music. CalArts has a huge world music program. So I'm I'm not an, an authority at by any means of african music or indian music or balinese music but i know the sound and i've spoken to to people that are on the faculty and pick their brains about processes and the thing that's mm-hmm. amazing about african music for example is that everything is learned by feel sound and that's kind of it feel and sound I mean, this thing right. that's written down. So the teacher who's from Ghana that used to teach there, Alfred Letsekpo, is a chief from Ghana, master drummer, and he would teach the students how to play just by playing. And then he'd say, do this. And the student who sometimes would be a really well-trained musician would attempt to duplicate what he did, but there would be some element missing because... Obviously, there's so much more to music than just where you place things um, and the dynamic you play at. There's so much more dimension to sound than that, so it can't really be contained on a flat piece of paper. So that training is a very deep kind of training because it right. deals with you know the senses,
1: feel, and feel, right. So when somebody says, uh, you know, you don't have to learn how to read music in order to be a great musician, what do you what do you say to that?
0: I think that's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's not to say that, you know, if I have a student that maybe uh, is really talented as an improviser and a natural guitarist, and I have had a lot of students like that, that is weak in reading, I will emphasize that they sort of get the reading together because today, you know, to be a professional musician in today's world, you you really need to, to be able to access material really quickly. And reading is just a tool. It doesn't make you a great musician that you're a great reader, but it's a great tool for sort of, you know, in any number of, you know, on all those recordings that we're talking about earlier, you know, I get a sheet of music placed in front of me and I have to try to make sense out of it really quickly sometimes that music is complicated or complex and sometimes it's really simple but the fact is i need to to translate what symbols are on that sheet to some kind of music and if i di- if i d- hadn't worked on my reading i wouldn't be able to get there that quickly because that in the studio you got to do it now you know
1: right it's- from a professional standpoint it's really important yeah it might exactly. make or break you. You might be the better musician for the job, say to back up some great singer, but uh, you didn't get the gig because the other guy could learn the music quicker by being a good reader.
0: That's exactly right. And the way you yeah. put it, professional. That's that's a that's a good description. I mean, it's it's tricky because you know, West Montgomery, for example, did not read, and there was no better jazz guitarist on the planet than West Montgomery. Talk about you know. An improvise feel and, a, and a, yeah feel and virtuoso too i mean chops for days and i mean he had it all and yet he mm-hmm. couldn't read joe pass the same way
1: that's not what joe pass said to me <laughs>
0: well joe was not a great reader
1: i went to take a lesson with him and uh, we were looking at uh, um, charts you know and I was struggling, you know. He says, you can't read that. he goes, you should really work on that, man. It's very important that you learn how to read, you know. <laughs> and hearing, hearing you say that about him, you go, yeah, that guy was, he was two-faced. But I, he was actually really helpful to no, me. No, I
0: don't think he was two-faced. I think he said it was important to read because he realized it later on. He never, yeah. he never was taught how to read. I mean, my father knew Joe very well, too. So mm-hmm. Joe always felt reading was important. It's just my father was very similar to Joe, self-taught. Really did not read, um, but felt it was an important skill to acquire, you know.
1: Did you do some gigs with your dad? Did you ever get up on the stage and play on a regular basis for a while?
0: Oh, a lot of times, yeah. In fact, we did a gig in Laguna Beach, like this father and son night. You know, I think Laguna Beach High School actually had a big auditorium. I remember we did... uh, I forget
1: sure. Artist there. Theater. Might have been with
0: John Clayton, the bass player, and his son, Gerald Clayton. It was like a father and son-themed concert. It was great. Wow. It was really fun. Cool. Yeah.
1: Well, that must be interesting to have that sort of report with your dad and music. Gives you a real deep connection. Absolutely. Yeah. Your dad could always say, look, I'm sick of your face. Go back to your room and practice the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah pretty cool when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, any any uh, thing that you could think of that I've left out here? I've tried to give a nice you know general idea about what Mister Larry Coontz is all about. Anything, Larry, that you could think of that I might have uh, that you wanted to talk about or? Um, I can
0: talk about my um, online video lesson.
1: Sure. Uh, Site. Yeah, give us some of your teaching. Uh, Uh, PR here sure yeah so
0: approximately three years ago a great guitarist named Tavi Gennaro who's really brilliant classical guitarist started uh, an online video instruction site called Elite Guitarist and the address is Elite Guitarist E-L-I-T-E-G-U-I-T-A-R ist dot com um, he started this site to sort of um, be a place that internationally at, at that time classical guitarists could go and sort of receive some instruction and then he decided to create a jazz component and he sort of put me in charge of that three years ago and it's been it's been the most ambitious undertaking um, of my life sort of taking all this conceptual stuff that I've been working on and honing in on in terms of teaching at CalArts and trying to sort of um, create a program that sort of encompasses all of that, right? So there's, I would say at this point, there's about 50 hours of uh, video lessons and about maybe 200 to 300 pages of PDFs Um, that deal with a a wide-ranging number of different subjects, you know, um, technique, you know, how to Mm -hmm. apply scales to the fingerboard, scale permutations, um, how to organize triads on the fingerboard, how to learn tunes, um, how to increase your chord vocabulary, how to improvise over progressions. You know, it's it's pretty much exhaustive in terms of, like, looking at all facets of jazz guitar.
1: So when you get up to the pearly gates, there's going to be a hand, you know, patting you on the back saying, Good job, Larry. You, you done good, kid. <laughs> <laughs> How about those books that George Van Epps came out with that were like those massive encyclopedia type looking books, right? Yeah now when you look at him you go well now i can see how he uh how he did all that uh judging from what it is that i'm going through putting this uh, program together you can see how uh what it takes to to really like uh put put it all out there right (laughs) absolutely
0: what a masterful work i mean george van epps i mean you think of i mean i've I've checked out these books and of course george was an engineer too so he had that kind of organizational mind he was a great guitarist and an engineer and so, I mean, those are just, you know, Kurt Rosenweckel talks about those books being a, a huge influence on his playing. And, and so many guitarists, you know.
1: Yeah. Have, have, I was wow. afraid to buy them. Yeah. I got, his little, I got his little thin chord book, you know, uh, with a picture of him or drawing of him, but I, I didn't buy those big books. Those scared me too much. They were like, <laughs> well, they're, I mean, that, they're, they're like too big for me. <laughs> intimidating. They're
0: intimidating. I've, I've I've only scratched the surface with him.
1: I, mean, I, I wanted to take lessons with him because he was down in our area here. You know, he lives he lived in Garden Grove or somewhere like that. And I and I got his uh, daughter on the phone, and I said, "Yeah, I've been trying to reach George uh, to take some guitar lessons." And she says, "You you can't have lessons with George right now. He's on tour in Europe. <laughs> He's like eighty three years old. He's like
0: amazing. What the." <laughs> I, I heard him play when he was 90
1: oh yeah and it was amazing
0: I mean he sounded great
1: still yeah I heard that would Segovia when
0: he was 93 actually
1: this is after his son passed away and he came back did you, you know that story? no he, he, his son I think passed away and he wasn't able to play for a while because he was too upset about it and then he eventually he picked his guitar up and started to practicing again concertizing, but at first so you were you were post uh, post the, the, the relative death in the family. How was that how was that uh, performance? Was he still able to just bring it uh,
0: to a certain extent? I mean you could see that there were, there were certain technical passages that would sort of hang him up. but you know uh, interestingly enough, John, he would, not, he would not let any of these passages get away without redoing them if he didn't play it correctly. I mean, he was fierce. He, and, you know, he, had, he also was one of these guys that was fearless. You know, he just go on stage. I remember, you know, seeing, from seeing those live concerts when I was really young, just walking out on stage with, you know, 3,000 people without microphones and playing for two hours. You know, just... I can't imagine I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm nowhere close to that.
1: <laughs> Forcing people to listen, you know, well, Ra- Ravi Shankar was like that too. He would come out and play, uh, uh, bravely like that and make sure everybody was quiet. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this has been really great talking with you. I really, uh, want to thank you for this and, uh, good luck with this new, uh, educational, uh, you know, endeavor that you're involved in. Uh, give it to us one more time. Uh, so what, what exactly is that thing?
0: Yeah, it's EliteGuitarist.com. Spelled spelled as you'd spell Elite and Guitarist.com. Okay.
1: okay. Are, are you the only uh, jazz guy on that uh, site? Uh, no, or there's, a,
0: there... there's a younger guitarist that I brought on who's amazing. His name's John Story, and he has a group called New West Guitar Okay. Trio. Um, and John is, John is one of these players that can a- actually do anything. He's: OK. A great country guitarist, great teacher, um, and was a student at Cal Arts as well.
1: What a surprise.:
0: yeah. <laughs> And at USC, too, he actually gra- he did his undergraduate degree at USC.
1: Hey, thanks so much. I think I'm going to wrap it up here. You, you're, you've uh, got the rest of your day there with your family and whatnot. But I really appreciate uh, you sharing with us.
0: Thanks for having me on, John.
1: Hopefully someday I'll get to meet you in person.
0: Probably when I'm visiting my brother-in-law.
1: <laughs> and, the co- <laughs> and the COVID has gone away.
0: Right, exactly.
1: What a horrible thing this is for musicians. But in, in a way, it gives you time to do stuff. So exactly. you got to look at the positive, huh? That's true. Okay. Okay. Good day to you. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. to Larry Kuntz on the guitar. This is the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, John Heusenstam, and this is The Guitar Life. If you enjoy our show, please subscribe. Until next time, see ya.